Uh, what a blessing it is to have the essential truths of our faith uh, presented uh, systematically over the course of time. As you know, if you've been here at Emmaus for any length of time, we do move through our catechism once every two years. And two years from now, we'll be ready to hear these truths all over again from a slightly different perspective, probably presented differently for sure. Uh, but it's good for us to always have these essential truths, these essential doctrines impressed upon our minds. And as I've said, I think it's especially beneficial to those who are brand new to the, va- to the faith to be exposed to them in a relatively short period of time. Uh, I know for me, um, it took me a little while, I think, to hear these truths. Uh, maybe that's the case for you as well. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not only come to the Lord's Day evening service yourselves, but to consider bringing others along with you. Consider encouraging other members of Emmaus to come. Uh, consider even bringing those who are interested in the Christian faith, who want to learn more. Certainly, if you know of anyone who is new to the faith, who can benefit from catechetical preaching such as this, bring them along with you. Uh, certainly, this service is open to visitors as well. This evening, we are going to consider Baptist Catechism 41. It asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? And as is our custom, I'd like you to repeat the answer after me. At the resurrection, believers, at the resurrection, being, raised up in glory, being raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted, shall be openly acknowledged and in the day of judgment, in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed, both in soul and body, in full enjoyment of God, to all eternity. The scripture reading this evening is 1 Corinthians 15, 35-49, a wonderful passage that teaches these very truths that we have just recited. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, the Apostle Paul says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I think we are to understand these as being the questions of uh, skeptics concerning the resurrection. Maybe these are those who assume that there can be no resurrection at the end of the age, but rather we go into the grave and that is it. So they ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And here is Paul's reply, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this evening. Have you ever wondered what the tree of life signified for Adam in the Garden of Eden? What did the tree of life signify? Well, you know what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil signified. That forbidden tree signified rebellion against God. God commanded Adam not to eat of it and threatened that in the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would lead to death. And conversely, eating from the tree of life would bring life, just as the name implies. But some might ask, wasn't Adam already alive? Indeed, he was already alive, and not only was he alive, but he was alive in paradise. He stood in right relation to God. And so some might wonder, what more could he ask for? What higher form of life could he possibly attain? Well, the presence of the tree of testing and the tree of life in the Garden of Eden suggests that God had more for Adam. The one tree was a threat to him. But the other held forth the promise of life, presumably a higher form of life than he possessed at that time, should he pass the test that was before him by keeping the covenant of works. As we all know, Adam failed. He ate of the forbidden tree and entered immediately into the state of death, which is eternal separation from and enmity with God. And so never did Adam eat of the tree of life. We know that he was barred from that tree. God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That is Genesis 3.24. So what was it that Adam forfeited? What kind of life was, was it that he was offered but failed to obtain? If the only scripture we had was Genesis 1 through 3, then I suppose we could only speculate about the answer to this question. But the rest of scripture answers this question with great clarity. The tree of life held out to Adam the offer of life eternal, consummate life, spiritual life, life in glory. This is what the scriptures mean when they say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, by the way. They mean that in sin we fall short of glory. We do not enter into glory. In sin, Adam and all who are in him fail to enter into this state of glory. For the sake of time, I'll put it this way. If you wish to know the kind of life and the kind of body that Adam would have been given, would he have obtained, Would he have abstained from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eaten from the tree of life instead? Then you are to consider Christ in his resurrection. If you wish to know what kind of life he would have obtained, what kind of body he would have had, had he abstained from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eaten from the tree of life, then consider Christ 
in his resurrection. For Christ, the second Adam, obeyed God. He earned the right to eat of that tree of life, if you will. He did enter into the glory of the Father. His earthly body went into the grave, but from there it was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to use Paul's metaphor, the body of Christ was like a seed sown perishable, but raised imperishable. It was sown in dishonor. It was raised in glory. And so Christ, the God-man, died according to the flesh, but He was raised in the flesh never to die again. He completed the circuit that the first Adam failed to complete. But listen carefully to this. When Christ entered into glory, He entered as a forerunner. He entered into glory so that He might in due time bring others into glory also. As Paul says elsewhere, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, For as by a man came death, speaking of course of the first Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 24. Last week we learned that when the believer dies, their body goes into the grave and their souls do immediately pass into glory. That will be a great blessing to pass into the presence of God Himself. But this week we learned that that is not the end for the believer. Instead, at the resurrection, that is... To say, when Christ returns to bring everything to a final conclusion, believers will be raised up in glory, openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, and made perfectly blessed, both in soul and body, in full enjoyment of God to all eternity. This will bring us into the, to the final state. And in the final state, we will have life and glory, life consummate, life Eternal, And that life will be enjoyed in body and soul. That life will be enjoyed for all eternity. Some have wondered what kind of body we will have in the resurrection. I'm sure you've wondered about this as well. What, what kind of body will it be? Uh, will it be this exact same body that I have now? I was speaking with my kids about this very thing this past week. Uh, and one of them asked a very familiar question. What age will we be? When we enter into the new heavens and new earth, you know, will we be infants again? I don't think so. Toddlers, uh, will we be teenagers or full-grown adults? What will it be? Well, this too is speculation. I don't even know if it's proper to speak about age in that final state, but we will certainly be mature. But what what kind of body will we have in the resurrection? As I've already said, the short answer is that our resurrection bodies will be like the one that Christ has now. If you wish to know, then think about Christ as He walked upon the earth in His resurrection for a short period of time before ascending to the right hand of the Father. His body, that's the kind of body that we will have. One, know that our resurrected bodies will be physical, therefore. Our resurrected bodies will be physical. Remember how Christ ate and drank in the presence of His disciples to prove this very thing? He was proving to them that He was not a phantom but that He had in fact risen physically. He ate and drank before them to prove this very point. Two, 
know that our resurrected bodies will correspond to the ones we have now. Though Christ must have looked different in some ways, He still had the marks in His hands and feet from the nails. Now, I'm not saying that we will bear our scars for all eternity. Maybe we will. I'm not sure, to be quite honest with you. But certainly the marks on Christ's hands and feet served a special purpose. They remain to this present day in order to function as an eternal memorial to the sacrifice that He made on our behalf. But the point is this, Jesus was recognizable. His resurrection body corresponds to the same body that was put into the grave nearly 2,000 years ago. And so it will be for all who have faith in Christ. They will be raised and their resurrection body, their physical resurrection body, will somehow correspond to the one that goes into the grave should they be put into the grave before Christ returns. And three, know that our resurrected bodies will be spiritual, just as Christ's body is spiritual. Now, that might seem like a contradiction to you, to speak of a body that is spiritual. We tend to think of things as being either physical or spiritual, but not both of those things simultaneously. But this is exactly how Paul uses the term spiritual in that 1 Corinthians 15 passage that was read at the start of the sermon. In verse 44, he says that resurrection bodies are sown, put into the earth, into the grave, natural, a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And Paul continues there saying, But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So in the resurrection, we will have a body, a physical body, like Christ's physical body. But this physical body will be spiritual. What is meant by that? What does Paul mean when he calls this body spiritual? He means that our resurrected bodies will be glorified, perfected, empowered, and forever sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what it means for a body to be spiritual in this sense. The body will forever be sustained and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what it means to have life everlasting. Now Paul's metaphor of the relationship between the body of a seed and the body of the plant that springs from the seed is very interesting, isn't it? Were you able to track along with that metaphor as I read from 1 Corinthians 15 just a bit ago? Um, as he talks about the relationship between the body of a seed, think of a seed, picture it in your minds, and the body of the plant that springs from the seed, he uses that metaphor to describe the relationship between our natural bodies and our spiritual bodies in the resurrection. The body of the plant that springs from the earth is more glorious than the body of the seed that was placed into the earth. But God has designed both the body of the seed and the body of the plant, and so is the relationship between our earthly bodies and the body that will be ours in the resurrection. The risen Christ is the forerunner, the first fruits, the prototype. Just as we have borne the image of this, the man of dust, speaking of Adam, so shall also we bear the image of the man of heaven, speaking of Jesus the Christ. This is precisely what our catechism teaches, among other things. Again, the question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? 
And the answer restated for you briefly, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed, both in soul and body, in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Notice a few things about this answer. One, we are talking about believers here and not those outside of Christ. Those outside of Christ will be our focus in the following question. Two, the language of glory is used here. Christ suffered in the flesh to bring many sons to glory, to quote Hebrews 2.10. That was His purpose, to bring many sons into glory. Three, notice the connection between the resurrection and the day of judgment. Notice that these two things will happen almost simultaneously. Again, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. According to dispensational premillennialists, there will be a long gap between the resurrection and the day of judgment. But the Scriptures nowhere teach this. In fact, the Scriptures teach that on the last day, Christ will return to raise the dead, to judge, and to usher in the new heavens and earth. So there will be many things that happen on that last day, including the resurrection, But this will be one event with many components and not many isolated events spread over a long period of time. And this is what Paul so clearly teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and following. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Uh, the premillennial dispensationalists see gaps of time in Scripture where there are no gaps of time to make room for what they, for what many have called the Protestant version of purgatory. In fact, what the Scriptures teach again and again is that when Christ returns, He will raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. This will happen almost simultaneously. It will be a full day, that last day is what we are to think. For those in Christ will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. Believers will be acknowledged on that last day as the children of God that they are, for they were adopted in Christ, remember. And believers will be acquitted, which is a legal term, for they were justified through faith in Christ. What a terrible thought to be judged by God in Christ. But what a wonderful hope we have. We will not be judged on the day of judgment, but will be openly acknowledged and publicly acquitted instead. Thanks be to God. And then five, believers will be made perfectly blessed, we are told, at the resurrection. We will be blessed at the moment of death, brothers and sisters, when our souls are brought into the presence of God. That is a blessing, a benefit that is ours in Christ Jesus. But at the resurrection, we will be made, notice, Perfectly blessed. This is because, six, we will in that moment be glorified both in soul and body as whole persons. As I explained last week, those with faith in Christ will be blessed in soul when they die, but their bodies will go into the grave. For this time we will be blessed, but we will be incomplete. God did not make us to be only souls when He created us, but rather He did form man from the dust of the earth and He breathed into him the breath of life at the beginning. This is what it means to be human. 
We are body and soul. And so for a time, we will be blessed but incomplete. But at the resurrection, we will be whole persons again, made perfectly blessed, both in soul and body. And seven, notice that the thing that will make heaven heavenly is the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Stated differently, God is the blessing. His presence is what makes heaven heavenly. I think many people assume it will be something else, you know. We will live in a beautiful paradise and that's what will make heaven heavenly. The climate will be always perfect. That will make heaven heavenly. We will no longer struggle with sickness or with disappointment or with grief. That will make heaven heavenly. And those things are all true to one degree or another. But really what will make heaven heavenly is the presence of God. We will enjoy His blessed presence forever and ever. King David knew this. And Christ knows this in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, written by King David, is really about Christ. Listen carefully to the words. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what benefits do believers receive from Christ as the resurrection? Repeat after me once more, brothers and sisters. At the resurrection, believers. believers, Being raised up in glory. Shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body in full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. What is man that You are mindful of him? Uh, That is a good question, even if we are considered in our upright state before we entered into sin. But it is even a greater question now that we have fallen into sin, given that we live at enmity with You according to our natural state. What is man that You even think of him? And yet You have thought of us, Lord, You have shown grace to us. You have provided a Redeemer. You have sent the Christ to do what the first Adam failed to do, so that many sons might be brought to glory. This redemption that we have in Christ Jesus is marvelous. These blessings that are ours in Him are something for us to rejoice about forever and ever, to think that Through faith in the Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. We are justified. We are adopted. We are sanctified. To think that at the moment of death, death does not have its sting, but we do enter into your presence to be blessed with you. And then at the end of time, when you make all things new, we will enter into the new heavens and new earth, body and soul. We will enter into the glory that Adam failed to, to obtain. God, you are merciful and kind. 
to bring us into that place, into that state, according to your original design. God, help us to comprehend how blessed we are and help us to live in the service of you because we are grateful. Father, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.